everyone. This is Manoj Tandon, and welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino Security Confidential. Today, we are honored to have Brandon Keith join us. Uh, Brandon is with Appalachia Technologies. He helps customers develop strategic cybersecurity plans that align with business goals to increase profit and growth while reducing overall risk. Very noble. He holds a master's degree in cybersecurity and information assurance, as well as an MBA in IT management from Western Governors University. And to top it off, he is currently pursuing a PhD with a focus on cybersecurity. Boy, you're really going all the way, Brandon. That's fantastic. Welcome to the show. Uh, so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's great that uh, you would take a little bit of time on your Friday and, and join us. So, you know, one of the things where I thought we would really start is with gaming. And that's um, a, a place that where a lot of cybersecurity conversations don't start. But I, I believe in your pathway into cyber, gaming was involved with it in some way, shape or form. Give us a, a little bit of a, a primer here on what I happened. Absolutely. So I started coming out of high school in, in 2008. I graduated and I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with my life. It was everyone was go to college. So I'd enrolled in college, but I got really big into the gaming scene and wanted to create my own uh, MMORPG, massive multiplayer online role playing game. So okay. I, I took a bunch of money and started investing into things. I created a forum. I got up to about 33,000 users um, and oh, a lot wow. of a lot of prototypes for games, but never wow. truly a real game. I probably sunk uh, quite a few thousand dollars, which at my minimum wage job at the time was almost all the money I made in the year went into trying to develop this game. Uh, so much so to the point where I, I dropped out of college and I put everything I had into trying to create uh, this indie game. And unfortunately, it, it failed uh, miserably. The, the gaming industry is, is very cutthroat. Um, in, in 2008, there wasn't even the, a lot of the indie gaming kind of platforms that exist today. Steam wasn't okay. a thing. You didn't have a green light or any of these tracks to get in. So it was really self-advertising. And after that failed, um, I had learned a lot about MySQL, about computers, about programming. So I started doing some freelance programming in Java development, which I had built you know, some prototypes in. So that was kind of my entryway into IT was through uh, gaming. Uh, but what was interesting is during that time was my first introduction to cybersecurity too, because that forum and website was actually hacked uh, oh, wow. from me by... By, I, I still to this day don't know who they were. Some, some hacker that used SQL injection to get into the forum I had and just shut everything down and then ransomed it back to me via MSN Messenger. If you want your website back, oh you're going to need to pay a ransom. This was long before. Remember back 2008, 2009. I long know. before ransomware was a thing. There was, was a ransoms happening. Uh, so that how was, much was the ransom for? I'm curious. Well, you know, I I was I was a teenager, so basically I cried. I was like, "Give me back my website!" <laughs> um, and they felt so bad for me. They they gave me back the backup eventually. So that was that was oh, kind my. of what happened. So they because uh, I was like, I literally don't have any money. I put 
I dropped out of college to try and do this, uh, to try and build a website, do something around gaming. I put all my money into it and you just took it all. Like I have nothing left. Yeah, but that's uh, passion, man. I mean, you really pursued the dream. I I did. And that was that's one of the, the things, and that'll be a touching point, is when you have a passion in life, you should pursue it because those are the things that are going to keep your interest. Uh, and it was interesting, this interaction with this hacker, I never thought I'd end up on the other end. Well, not the other end from a bad guy point of view, but from the good right. guy point of view of actually learning hacking and how all of that uh, came into play later. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's uh, the fact, and, and you took a huge chance there. I, I guess, let, let me ask you this. Uh, in going through that experience, did you, were you happier doing that than you would have been doing a, a regular day job somewhere? Oh, absolutely. And, and there was... After that, I had my ups and downs. I had to take whatever jobs I could because everything had failed and I was out of money. So I, I took some jobs. And after about a year, I went back to college and started studying IT uh, and used those same skills I had gained from that to move into an IT career. So I was able to use that to pursue the interest that I still had, which was I really like technology and I really like gaming. I was like, well, if I can't do gaming, I still kind of like doing this. I enjoyed setting up databases, doing these different things. Uh, so I'm going to learn more about it. You know, Brandon, uh, one thing, uh, we have a, a lot of uh, young listeners on, on the show. And uh, I've talked about it in a few different episodes with different guests where one of the greatest teachers in life, and we're, I'm digressing just a little bit, uh, is failure. And... Uh, there's no better teacher than failure. It, it really exposes you to things and makes you truly aware of what your genuine passions and interests are. Is there any advice you would have for folks who want to pursue that dream of whether that was building a computer game or they want to get into cyber or they want to get into robotics or whatever, or start a nursery for that matter, it doesn't matter, uh, but are just afraid to take the chance? Well, I think the, the only failure you have is the chances you never take, right? Because you can sit there and be anxious or paranoid about failing, but I learned so much more from my failures than I ever do from my successes. And success is often accompanied by the prerequisite that is failure. You have to fail before you could succeed. I mean, I was at the lowest point at, in my life only about a year and a half after graduating high school. I had spent all my money, whatever money I had for college I had spent. I had dropped out of college uh, with all Fs, straight Fs. So I, you know, even to go back to college was going to be a challenge for me because I had dropped out to try and pursue this dream. Uh, so you put all the cards on the table, but even at that point, that doesn't mean you're beyond coming back from that breaking point. And sometimes you have to be broken uh, to be rebuilt. That is sage advice for everyone that's listening out there. You might want to rewind and replay that one again, because uh, that's the real thing. Um, and I would concur that as an entrepreneur, boy, have I made a whole bunch of mistakes. I can tell you that uh, 
uh, in spades. Um, but everyone, instead of being uh, a destructive finality, has been an opportunity to uh, do something different and improve upon it and improve myself. Uh, so it's great to hear that. So tell me something in the uh, you know, I, I'm not a gamer. I, I, you know, when I was gaming, it was the Atari console. So that's a long time ago. And Space Invaders was a thing. I don't even know if anybody even remembers what the hell that game was. But um, are there in those consoles, for all the parents that might be listening, any vulnerabilities or things that they have to watch out for? I'm just curious with their kids... Uh, being online and playing the games? I mean, generally, when you talk about consoles, they're pretty locked down for the most part, unless people start tinkering with with them themselves. You can hack consoles. There was a big, way back in the day, the Wii. If you remember the Wii, everyone had a Wii. Yeah, everybody had, yeah, that was a fun game. It console. had a DVD player in it that you yes, could not use to watch movies. Well, if you hacked your Wii, you could enable the DVD player. And there was a bunch of tutorials, things that other people did, so you could enable the DVD player and turn your Wii into a retro console. So you could put, install different emulators on it, do all kinds of things. And there's an entire online community just with people that do a console hacking, very similar to phone hacking. And it still exists even, even today. But back then, a lot of it was there was PlayStation 2 hacking and Wii hacking. Uh, and then once PS3 came out, a new community formed around that as well. But there's this whole online group. Now, the thing I would be careful around there is there's, there's a lot of people that do that to steal games, right? They download games, and then that's how they play them. Um, but my, my understanding, and I'm not a legal expert, so this is no legal advice, but there was nothing legally wrong with hacking a Wii and making it play DVDs. Like from, from a legal perspective, you were hacking and expanding its capabilities. Um, but from, from the perspective of what parents should be worried about, I think it's more about just the interactions online. Those consoles today are just like computers, so you don't always know who people are messaging, who they're interacting with in the online chat rooms, just like you would treat someone who's maybe in a chat room for a computer, you should think of consoles that way too. So uh, the other players may be on a computer version of the same game, right? Yes. Well, you may be on a console. Does that open up any, so there's no additional uh, capabilities that are opened up to that other individual who might be looking at uh, trying to get some, personal data because they're on a much more powerful platform and they have much more capability to be able to extract that data off your machine. Not, not necessarily specifically. I think the biggest worry though that you'll have from consoles that you'll see a lot is phishing because rather than going after the exploitation, you'll see people trying to get your codes or your password to get into your Xbox account, which oh, may be linked to how they can uh, that, start doing things. Yeah, and given the amount of password reuse there, I guarantee that once you got one password, you probably got it to at least 10 other things that person does. So, Right, and <laughs> you could start to see a scenario, especially someone who's young, who a bunch of friends 
that they've made yeah. online starts egging them on. Yeah, what's your password? Come uh, on, yeah. man, what's your password? Uh, I could and- see that. I could see that happening. So you know, getting back to your uh, career there, you you went into gaming and then went back to school, got involved with Java and IT, and then how did that translate from general IT into cyber? Well, that's that's always an interesting story because it was never my intention, at least at that point in my life, to pursue cybersecurity. So the challenge for me at that point was just getting into IT. So at that point, I started trying to go back to school. I started looking at IT certifications. So I got uh, CompTIA's A-plus certification back. And I started applying to every single job I could possibly get. At that time, I was working part-time between a whole bunch of different jobs, between warehouse work, uh, and just doing whatever I could to get by. I was still trying to do some of the freelance stuff online, but this was before Freelancer, before Fiverr, before there were platforms that made that easier to do. So when I was trying to get a job, I'd go out to forums and try and find people looking wow. for programmers. Okay. So it's like, okay, is there any freelance work I can do here? And specifically, a lot of that was in the game modding community. So people were looking for game mods and I could get paid commission to help create code so they could mod their game uh, for them. So it was, it was kind of, that was before modding and Patreon was a thing too. So it's all this stuff kind of existed before, but it wasn't formalized. You were way ahead of your time. (laughs) Oh, I, I mean, there was like microtransactions before microtransactions for like uh, some of the stuff, but it's, it's amazing to have seen the industry grow. So I went from that, And I had a lot of failure and rejection because I didn't have a degree yet. I just got that A-plus certification. I went to hundreds and hundreds of jobs and just got rejection after rejection. Now, were you applying to big companies or were these smaller companies like Dark Rhino? Um, all, All of the above. So I was literally going through, I would go to, I discovered if you went directly to company sites at that time before Workday or some of the other big names, you could find listings before they got out publicly. So people would post on their website first. So I would just be driving by and I'd be like, oh, you know, uh, this person's construction. I'm going to see if they need an IT job. Oh, they do. I'm going to apply for that IT job. And I went to just interview after interview. Um, and to get experience, I would, and I don't recommend people doing this, but back then, to try and understand computers better, I went on Craigslist and just started buying up all old computer equipment. And I would take computers apart. I would put them back together to make sure I knew what I was doing. So when I went into the interview, I could talk about what I was doing from a hardware perspective and a software perspective. So I've done some, a little bit of software development in my free time. You know, I've done this and I've worked with hardware a little bit too, exchanging parts, how to take out a processor, whatnot, because I wasn't sure what was going to be the the make or break. Um, so I, I ended up at Staples as a easy tech associate. So that was my, my job that I ended up. And I actually got laid off from that job because I didn't meet their sales quota. Oh, my. Within, you had a sales within like quota as a, as a tech? Absolutely. Absolutely. What? Isn't that a conflict of interest kind of a thing where <laughs> you're supposed to help someone fix their equipment, but 
you're well, going to get paid more if you help them fix it better, quote unquote. <laughs> well, I, I also got in trouble for for recommending people download free antivirus too. Like that was that was a big negative. I was supposed to make sure you sell Semantic 360, oh, right? Uh, do you remember Semantic 360? I remember, yeah, signature based antivirus. It. You, you had the whole package, like the total protection. And if you didn't sell as many of them, um, you just didn't meet your quota. So there was a sales quota. So I, I remember the manager saying, you know, Brandon, you're, you're technically really good, but you're just not meeting uh, the sales quotas. Um, and the sales quotas were impossible. Other people weren't really making them either, but I guess I was the low, I was the new guy. So I was the easy one to get oh, rid of. So, you, you know, I got to interrupt just briefly. So, Anyone out there listening, uh, if you have a story like Brandon's, let I mean, and you're looking for a job and you can't find one, here's what I would say you should do. Find out who the executives in the company that you want to go work with are. Write them a letter or an email. Letter works better because email they get tons of and things get lost in it. Um, and tell them the same story with the passion that Brandon just told his story. And I guarantee you, you'll probably have a job that you want inside of a week. And if we, uh, and this has happened to us, Brandon, we've had people that have knocked on our door, at, actually waited in the parking lot for someone to come in. It sounds creepy. The guy's like, just give me 15 minutes. And you know what? Those guys were rock stars, some of those guys. So uh, it's hard to tell a story, but um, heck, man, it surprises me that you had a hard time and you ended up at Staples. It, uh, I, it Bigger and better things, because yeah. after that, I got hired by a university on their help desk. Um, okay. And from there, I ended up, I got directly hired from there to another company, uh, which actually ended up being my first cybersecurity job. So the, the next company I went into after that, I was there for almost three years. And it was within, within several months of being there, uh, there was a cybersecurity incident. I can't go into details, but I can tell you sure. what my boss did. He came around the corner and said, Brandon, you're the new uh, cybersecurity person. And I said, the, the what? You were voluntold. And I was like, does it come with a pay increase? He said, no. <laughs> So that was that was how I ended up. I, I was put in charge of security compliance. I was mandated to get my security plus, all of it all at once. Um, so I when I say I literally fell into cybersecurity, I literally fell into it. Well, I would say that you created the circumstances so that you could have that opportunity take place. Absolutely. And it, it worked out really well um, for me. So I went on and I, I've done a lot in the industry since then and over a decade from, from being the defender, working in SOC environments to being a penetration tester to now providing vCISO services and that strategic so outlook Brand for companies. Brandon, uh, in our experience, a lot of companies large and small still have uh, a lot of learning to do in the world of cyber. You know, what's, what does defense in depth truly mean and, and how do you execute that? So my question to you would be is 
we try and start the conversation with risk, and I'm sure you do as well. What are some practical suggestions on how companies, if if they're brownfield or greenfield, and they might just have semantic antivirus and and a sim deployed and thinking they got they got it all, man, the world is awesome. Um, how would you suggest that those guys start viewing risk and truly trying to develop an understanding of how they should go about doing defense and tech? That's a big question, I know. So you want to break it up? It it is, but I think I think I have a pretty good answer to it. And I think when we talk about helping people understand risk, it's good to know the audience you're talking to. When we're talking to other cybersecurity professionals, it's easy to talk about exploits and tech-heavy jargon that business executives may not understand. But when we're talking to either business people, they might understand certain business terms such as total cost of ownership. They can talk about budgets and how it's going to impact their bottom line. Those things they'll understand. So we need to talk about in their language or talk about in a more general language. Often when I'm talking to executives, I'll talk about homes because when you make something personal, especially if it's cybersecurity, people will tend to care about it a lot more. So let's talk about your home. Do you lock the door on your house before you go to bed? 99% of people always tell me yes. And I said, why? Well, to, to keep people from breaking in, I was like, do you think that lock on the door is going to keep someone out if they want to get in? Are they going to be able to break a window? Are they going to be able to do this? And they're like, no. Well, why do you do that? Well, that's a deterrent or an early warning system. That's what a lot of the cybersecurity stuff we put in place is. It's deterrence and early warning systems for the person that's trying to break into a company, just like the person that breaks into your house. And just like for most people before they buy a security system, a lot of companies will buy cybersecurity or invest in cybersecurity staff after they've had an incident and it's already too late. That is overwhelming. 90% of the people that end up coming to us is exactly the scenario you just described. It's, it's after something happened where the value proposition becomes readily obvious to them. Right. And the, the issue is trying to get ahead of that, right? So how do we evaluate that risk before that happens? So if I'm talking about an event, there are things that people do in their life before they have a home break in, right? Like people yes. buy a safe. What do you keep in your safe? You keep your valuables in your safe. What do you, what do you use to get into your house? So you use your keys to get into your house. Well, would it make sense if everyone in the neighborhood had keys to get into your house? No. Probably not. Or what if what if the whole region, everybody in the whole region had keys to get into your house? Like there's just every other house seems to have a master key that gets into yours. Well, that's what we're talking about when we say someone has a domain administrator, right? Or we're talking about someone that has right. high-level privileges in an environment. That's what we're getting at. Does that make sense? How do we start to protect those valuables? And those are the ways I try and describe things when I'm talking to executives to get a better level of understanding. So let's get rid of the text jargon. Let's talk about things you understand and compare it in the best possible way we can to help 
evaluate risk. Risk for every organization is going to be different, no matter Absolutely. what we do. There's no uh, blanket formula that applies. Uh, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Because what you're protecting is going to be completely different. And the value of what you're protecting and what it's going to take to restore what you're protecting. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that go into that. So it, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Couldn't, couldn't agree with that more. Do you find that executives, the folks that write checks are willing or more open now to looking at spending in cyber? Because traditionally, it's always been looked at as a cost center, mm-hmm. right? Which I personally don't agree with. I think there's a lot of ways. And you had some ideas on how it can be a revenue center as well. But um, it's always looked at as a cost center. And so there's always hesitancy. Oh, we haven't been broken into yet. Uh, what we have is working fine. And uh, until it's not, and then it's really not. Yeah, absolutely. When we're talking about cybersecurity, we need to make it a bigger conversation. Because one of the things you look at that causes a lot of technical issues is this idea of technical debt. And technical debt is really the amount of decisions that we make technically for a short-term gain that might have a long-term impact. So think of a the door, again, the door on your house is, is rotting. Someone could just, it's going to fall off, right? But right. you don't want to replace it just yet because it, it's just, it's still working. We're not going to fix what's broken. That is debt that we have. And when we talk about buying IT equipment, there's a certain lifespan on that. For a lot of organizations, yes. that's three to five years. But a lot of the security holes we find, if you look statistically, 90% of breaches are caused by vulnerabilities that there was a patch for, or there was an outdated system. So when we start talking about this technical debt, from a cybersecurity point of view, if you implement better systems, better optimized systems, the newer systems that are more up to date, that's going to make your business processes more efficient. That's going to be able to accelerate and give you a competitive advantage against your competition because your systems are going to be faster. You're going to make money while fixing your cybersecurity problems at the same time. That's how you can make it a better conversation. Cybersecurity by itself is is going to be a cost. If you buy a lock, it's not going to make it easier to get into your house, and that lock by itself isn't going to make you any money. But you know what will? Having a door on your house will make that house sell for a lot more than if you didn't have a door. You're you're exactly correct. That's kind of a cool analogy. And uh, technical debt is uh, a very cool uh, way of looking at it. It's a very interesting way. I, I had not thought of it in that regards it's a good uh, it's a good measure and, and there's a lot of it that's out there absolutely i mean i run into systems all the time where there is windows 2000 out there there's windows xp out there there's still 90s systems out there that have been running for years that just still are not replaced I had one person I talked to, they said, well, Windows XP has been running great for 20 years. I don't see a reason to replace it now. 
Oh Lord. Right. So there is <laughs> there is a misconception about how some of these things work. And if you're not in this field, if you're not working in this field and you have no insight into it, then that's the the perception. So Brandon t- that that actually brings up a very interesting problem and it gets right into vulnerability management, right? When I think you know most people in IT departments are are really bright and and they know what's going on. Uh, but a lot of times your hands get tied. If right. if you are in the business of uh, making widgets or you make money through doing trades and transactions or something that involves uh, a platform, a bespoke platform that you created Mm -hmm. uh, that is critical to the revenue chain of your company. And that platform is only running on antiquated technology. You get into a solid conundrum of how do you do good vulnerability management at that point? Because you can't, if you shut down the revenue chain of the company, well, then you don't have a job anymore because no one's right. making any money. If you update it, it's not possible. Uh, and then there's a might be a huge capital cost, or it may not even be possible to update those systems, and you have to implement something from the ground up, and there's a time and capital cost associated with it. What do you do? What What's your advice? I mean, if you're running a manufacturing plant, you got robots from the 1980s on it. They can't except a modern operating system. I just can't. Right. And these are a lot of common problems I run into with enterprises. And a lot of it comes down to a major cost-benefit analysis, right? As cybersecurity professionals, you can't make companies do what from, from us as professionals, we look at, it seems obvious to us. Like, why wouldn't you do the right thing? But from a right. monies and dollars perspective, right? The cost benefit analysis. So part of my job that comes in, and sometimes I end up wearing that CIO hat too. It's, well, we need to look at this from a stability perspective, right? When we talk about, and and this goes back to that whole second law of thermodynamics things, everything degrades and decays, right? You're eventually going to have to replace your roof. Entropy always increases. Absolutely. Um, If you're in California, uh, not Colorado, you got to replace your roof more often than other places too. Uh, So that's the, the thing is we have to look at it from strategically. If those antiquated systems are quote unquote working, right? It's our revenue stream today. But what does that look like in three, five, 10 years? Are we going to be able to continue to use that system? And are we still going to be able to be competitive with our competitors? Because you have people like Amazon, who Bezos is saying, I think in 10 to 15 years, Amazon might not even exist. And that's not a great way to spread, you know, stockholder confidence when you make statements like that. But I think what he may have been referring to is things change so fast now. And competition in the market, when you look at business, is driven by disruption. So if you're an older manufacturer, if you're a company that's been established for a long time, the only way you're going to be able to compete is by disrupting and doing things differently. And if you're stuck in doing things in an antiquated way that requires a lot of maintenance, that's not going to be sustainable, and that's a ticking time bomb, that's 
quantifying that, it makes a lot of sense to say we need to make this investment to stay relevant. And I think that's the conversation that has to be had, but it's not one that can be had just from a cybersecurity team itself. It's got to be reaching across the aisles. I see a lot of enterprises, they're siloed. IT team does their thing. Business does that's their right. team. You got to break down those walls. And that's hard. That's a people thing. We got to break you down gotta those walls. You got to bring the COO and the CFO into that discussion. because Absolutely. It's got to be, this has got to be a strategic initiative from the top down, but it also has to come from the bottom up too. There's going to be hesitancy from people that work there if they've been in that position for a long time. Like that one uh, person I mentioned before, he's like, XP has been running great for 20 years. Um, that was that was a person in charge of physical security. And he was talking about their physical security systems because his mindset came from the idea, well, we build a parking lot. We only have to pave it once every 20 years. <laughs> and that's that was his mindset for everything. So he applied that analogy to all uh, to IT systems as well. Yep. So uh, I agree with you, especially in um, companies that are competing. But when you look at monopolies uh, that own infrastructure, uh, and, and I've been on this thing to try and get people to listen to bolster our national infrastructure for a long time, but mm -hmm. nobody listens. But hey, what the heck? I'll, I'll still talk about it a little bit. Um, in, in those cases, if you're running a power plant, you're running a, uh, you know, a, a waterworks, a lot of those uh, PLCs are ancient. You know, things yep. are ancient out there. In those, and, and you just can't replace them. I mean, you, you can't replace the control system on a turbine willy-nilly. It's not going to happen. Is there a, a set of best practices? Are you suggesting when you run into these kind of impossible situations, are you air-gapping the systems or isolating them? Or what What can companies do I, to yeah, manage so around this? So for, for ICS systems specifically, industrial control systems are always difficult because you have a situation where you have systems that are vulnerable, that are sensitive, that are not going to be able to, to be patched. If someone can connect to the network they're on, they can be hacked into and catastrophe Absolutely. can take place. And for that you have to build around a bubble, right? It's compensating control. So we're going to create a networked bubble. We're going to offset it as much as we can. But despite how much you try and contain that, it's not a long-term solution, right? It's a band-aided solution. But I do see hope for some of those industries. There's been a lot of work. And actually, I, I didn't get a chance to tell you this because it happened between last week and this week, but I actually okay. changed my major uh, from cybersecurity to blockchain technology. Oh, really? Yeah, I am focusing now because some of the research I've been doing has led me to a, an interest in blockchain and specifically security around blockchain. So my, my research is still going to be on security, but I'm focusing in on that technology. Because... Oh, we have to do a follow-up on the math <laughs> behind this. This is a topic near and dear, but I... I digress. Please go ahead. So some of the some of the technologies around that is looking at ways to decentralize different areas. Uh, Fetch.ai is is one example of this, where it uses machine learning 
with decentralized tokens. So if you have specific code or things you need to be run, you do it without a server. So you have autonomous parts. It, it almost sounds like the, the whole uh, code that's running without infrastructure, but it's even a step beyond that because you have specific work that you're getting done in a decentralized manner and you're paying for the system to, to do itself. So those types of technologies and that type, specifically they're seeing an uptick in the electrical market because there's ways that you can automate different areas of the electrical grid using this technology that could replace what we currently have. Because you don't want to wait on an operator or wait on a system to, to keep electricity running. It just needs to work. Right. So explain that a little bit. How how are you running code without the infrastructure behind it? In layman's terms, I got that part of it. But what else is going on there? Right. So when you're talking... Just in case someone's interested. Right. Okay. So when you're talking about a blockchain technology, it's also sometimes called like distributed ledger technology, right? Yes. You have a ledger that people write to. In, in Fetch.ai's case, it works off... You can implement, instead of like trading tokens you can implement scripts that get run. So the work that's being performed isn't solving a code. It's actually running code on something. Okay. So you're actually using the, the processing to run work or run jobs or machine learning algorithms. So instead of outsourcing or having the processing done on a centralized server, you are decentralizing the processing and the work that needs to get done and letting it happen when it needs to happen. Uh, so it's a very, it's a very, uh, th that we had this back in the day where you used to be able to like sell your CPU cycles to get work done. Yes. And this is almost like a new way. Back in way. the days of mainframes, you right. could do that all the time. Right. So it's, I always say there, there always seems to be, we go in cycles of centralizing and decentralizing. So now this is decentralizing again, how we potentially have work run right so if you need certain machine learning algorithms uh, there there's actually you can look at it at fetch.ai there is a developer docs you can look at how you can start running things on a fetch's blockchain network it's it's just... very interesting hmm i wonder if uh, this could be used to scale up a uh, nice bitcoin mining operation I mean, use crypto, use blockchain to mine crypto. I mean, the the possibilities for some of this stuff is is endless, and it I have is friends. endless. It's endless. It, it is. But so, uh, we, so sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say I have friends who who are doing a lot with quantum computing right now, uh, and I'm I'm good friends with the people over at Harrisburg University where they have a department for that. And I can't decide what's going to change the world more, blockchain or quantum, because the stuff over there is almost just as crazy. Um, and and it's, it's tough to focus and see all the radical changes that are going to have a profound impact. You know, it's a ways away, but I think it won't be in my lifetime, but I, I think I could see it in my grandkids' lifetime where the way we currently do cryptography will become obsolete by technologies like that if we could really do quantum com quantum computing can be applied to a stack of problems right now that are unsolvable uh simply because of the time required to solve it not right right 
and they can there's a substrata of problems there that they will solve instantly if the code is cracked well, well eventually i think we just need to get rid of passwords entirely i think that was just a bad decision on our part when we designed computers i know the first computer didn't even have a password on it that was added after someone made a change that they weren't supposed to like some of the first unix systems didn't even have password and they were like oh this is a bad idea we should do something to to lock them out uh, let's let's add like a passcode to it like you know how we have bank pins we should do something yeah. like that and that was kind of the the start of passwords and we we as professionals back then, we gave the power to the individual to decide how locked down their account was. It, it's kind of an interesting concept. So we designed a system where we gave the power to the person to, to determine that. Um, and, and thinking back, that may have not been the best idea. Um, there may have been other ways of handling that, but we we have to live with it now. So now how do we start talking about how do we design systems that maybe don't use passcodes? And you see various implementations of that. Microsoft is trying really hard with their Microsoft Hello. Uh, you see the fingerprint scan uh, readers or the thumbprint readers. They're yep. trying different ways to get away from passwords. There's a plethora of startup companies out there that have come up a lot based out of Israel that are creating those technologies. Um, the, there's a numerous number of them. Uh, and, you know, so I, we, that's another big topic in itself. So one question that comes up is, um, I, and this is just more of a clarification. Is there such thing as creating a system that just can't be breached? Is there an approach? A cybersecurity approach that's hundred percent guaranteed to work all the time, every time, all day. I, I would say no. There's not a way, and I think most people would say that. I think there are certainly ways that you can lock down systems to a point where, within a, a very high percent margin of possibility, you're not going to have anyone break into the system. So, if you look at things like SE Linux, most exploits that come out, even on a lot of the Linux kernels, don't work on SE Linux because SE Linux is so locked down, it's very hard to, to, to break into it. But when I have conversations with people that actually administer SE Linux, it's horror stories that you can never get anything to work because everything is locked down to the nth degree. And I think we end up having that conversation of we make something more secure, it's less available. The more locks I put on a door, I got to unlock each one of them to get into the door, right? There's, uh, yeah, if you can't get into the house, what's the point of the house? Why is there 90 padlocks on the door? <laughs> is there, oh, there's even more on the back door. Well, is there, there's bars on the windows? It's well, made you know of I, steel? I, I want our audience to understand that you can't stop a breach. You no. you really can't. At some point, if someone has enough uh, enthusiasm and resources behind them and they want to get into your stuff, you know what? They're going to get into your stuff. Right. right. And a lot of it is about building up a certain level of defense. You're not going to stop right. you're not going to stop a tank from coming through your building 
right? Right. Um, keeping with that same analogy. But what you can do is criminals tend to go after the weakest links. So if you are too difficult to break into, they'll move on to someone else. And trust me, there always is someone else. And there's That's... always there's always a new system out there. I think the, the craziest one I think I've seen is the smart toilet that was accessible via public IP on Shodan. You got to be kidding me. I didn't no. know this. You can't make this stuff up. So they were using it to track the amount of water used um, from the toilets. Um, and so they could use that for some business purpose, I guess, for replacing. They wanted to automate, I guess, how often to replace toilet paper. I you I don't know the exact thing. You can't make this stuff up. So That's uh, okay. I would have never thought of that. But it was publicly available via an open IP, right? So it's that's there wasn't any additional security set up around that that that's uh that's crazy which actually brings us to the topic of cyber insurance here in the last part of this because <laughs> one thing that you can do with risk is pawn it off to somebody else and and uh i think there's a especially in the c-suite there's a lot of mentality well i don't understand a lot of this stuff but what i am going to do is cover myself with cyber insurance right and that market is changing immensely because they have been getting uh hit with more claims than premiums that they're taking in what are your thoughts on on that i mean i generally once we start talking about insurance i start to ask people what has been your experience with insurance has your health insurance has your car insurance anytime you've ever made a claim what has the experience been like and almost every single person I talk to has a bad experience. It said, so you want to put your reputation on the line and they're going to pay you a certain amount of money. Just imagine that from a cybersecurity perspective. Because now you're saying that my reputation of my company, my critical assets, I'm going to cover that for a certain monetary amount. But there's certain intangibles when we talk about that, when we talk about Absolutely. branding. There are people today that will still never shop at Target after the Target breach. I know several of them. They say, Target was breached. I won't shop there. There are still people that will not buy Sony PlayStations because of the Sony breach. Those are intangibles. There were customers that were lost for life. And I think that is something that you have to quantitatively think about. Am I going to, if I get this insurance and this happens, am I really going to be covered? Are there going to be intangible things that I'm not going to be able to account for? And then are you, are they even going to pay out? A lot of insurance companies will make you do all the security stuff you have to do. You should do, I should say anyway. Now they're making people do that. It wasn't the case before. It was like a five question thing. Do you have a firewall? Do you have a password? Well, sometimes. Ah, that's okay. You know, <laughs> here's a million dollar policy. <laughs> well, I mean, once you start losing money, at first, they could get everyone to sign up and they weren't losing any money. But as soon as claims started happening, all of a sudden, it's, it's a different story, right? All of a sudden, it's become really expensive as soon as you have a claim because insurance companies 
it's it's not a benefit it's not like a trust or something it is it is a business designed to make money and it only works if you have more people paying in uh than paying out absolutely absolutely there's a lot of uh caveats that have come up exclusions in cyber insurance policies uh, that people, especially now with the ransomware, the way the attacks have proliferated, people would be well advised when they renew their policies to really read those fine prints that nobody does and, and understand what is truly covered and what is truly not. And they might be surprised at the number of things they thought they were covered for that they're just not anymore. Right. And I, I just want to make it clear that I do not support anyone ever paying a ransom, if at all possible. I understand that some business owners and decision makers make that decision. But whenever you are negotiating with criminals and paying criminals, you are just helping their enterprise. And we, there could be an argument made that the criminal enterprise that currently exists, which is now a multi-billion dollar industry. Oh, it's massive. Has been paid for and funded by the people that paid for that ransom. And I'd say as if you look at uh, if you're a believer in conscientious capitalism and you talk about social responsibility of companies, there's a certain responsibility there to think that you don't want this to be a problem for your future company or other companies or future generations. And we're, we're making the problem worse by paying the ransoms. And that's, I'm pretty sure the FBI has a very similar stance on it. Uh, yeah, as well. The trouble comes in with the practical implementation of that, right? right. So the recover part of the NIST framework uh, is often underimplemented, if that's a word, is what I, I, I will I will say that uh, people have disaster recovery plans. A lot of times they've never been tested. A lot right. of times those plan those mediums themselves get encrypted in a ransomware attack. Right. And, and when's the last time you were part of a fire drill? When was the last right. time we had a fire? Right, exactly. You're right, exactly. And that's that's the same thing outside of places where that's enforced. I, I can't remember the last time for uh, the household I'm in right now where we've even had a discussion of if there's a fire, where's the escape routes? We probably should. And I think that is that's where a lot of companies still are. They've maybe never had a major cyber incident or if they have had a cyber incident, the IT team isn't talking enough with the business for them to understand what that impact really looks like. IT team might be, we took care of it, uh, don't worry about it. And the business people aren't thinking about it much after that. So, Brandon, this has been a very enlightening conversation. I'd like to give you a minute or two if there's anything you would like to plug, talk about, anything uh, that you would want us to include in the show notes. It's, uh, it's your floor, sir. Yeah, absolutely. So if, if you like hearing me and for some strange reason you want to hear more from me, you can uh, connect with me on LinkedIn and check out my YouTube channel, the thehackinglab.com. If you go to that site, you'll you'll see links to, to my YouTube and, and can hear more. Fantastic. We'll make sure that we uh, connect uh, that up in the show notes. 
and we'll also put, put that note in on LinkedIn so that people will be able to go to that. This has been wonderful, Brandon. Really appreciate you spending Friday afternoon with us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. And a weekend.